0: Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. Whatever here means to you, you are welcome here. Here in Austin, it is full-on summertime, and I hope it is cooler where you are. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by greeting one another. I hope you have comments in the way that you are watching this service. And if you do, please take this time to greet one another. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship is from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. This congregation wrote its own mission, which guides our decisions as we move together into the future. We wrote it on the wall of our sanctuary, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. After the mission, we normally have a moment for beloved community in which we think about something in a new way. But I want to tell you that really my whole sermon is a moment for beloved community right now. And we are pondering the history of policing in America and what it might mean to defund the police don't hang up on me right now i think you'll be all right
1: today's reading comes to us from stephen pinker's book the better angels of our nature why violence has declined challenge a person's beliefs and you challenge their dignity their standing and power And when those beliefs are based on nothing but faith, they are chronically fragile. No one gets upset about the belief that rocks fall down as opposed to up, because all sane people can see it with their own eyes. Not so for the belief that babies are born with original sin, or that God exists in three persons, or that Ali is the second most divinely inspired man after Muhammad. When people organize their lives around these beliefs and then learn of other people who seem to be doing just fine without them, or worse, who credibly rebut them, they're in danger of looking like fools. Mm
0: -hmm. Since
1: one cannot defend a belief based on faith by persuading skeptics, it's true. The faithful are apt to react to unbelief with rage and may try to eliminate that affront to everything that makes their lives meaningful.
0: Please join me as you are able for a moment of meditation and prayer where we speak to God and listen to God as we understand God, or where we listen to our inner wisdom that's within us, or just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. Please join me in prayer. God of many names and no name, our hearts are grieving over the many sick and dying from this virus. Our hearts are grieving that our government's response has been less than what we all needed. Our hearts are grieving because the virus seems to be decimating the poor, the black and brown, people for whom social distancing is a dream. We ask for clarity. We ask for determination. We ask for mercy. We ask for a sense of being useful and a way to be useful. Guide us through this terrible time. We also are grieving because of police brutality and violence in our country. We want to know what to do about it so many young people are leading the way and we are so very very proud of them be with them and keep them in all of your many names and no name we pray you are now invited to light candles in your home Candles of joy or sorrow, hope, remembrance or determination. When ministers get together to talk about their churches, one of the questions is, what's in the DNA of your congregation? How are they with religious education? How are they with, with money? How are they in terms of relating to their ministers? What's their pattern? Do they have one? This sermon is not about that, but that kind of question has gotten me to thinking about what is in the DNA of policing, Because there can be things that are deep, deep, deep in the past of a congregation that affect the congregations present without anyone even knowing consciously what it is that is affecting them. And so I'm wondering if there are things deep, deep, deep in the roots of policing that are affecting policing now. And I've been reading all this week, and the results are, in the words of Mary Daly, amazing which means you're in a maze, you can't find your way to think clearly about it, and then you read or think or learn something that takes you out of the maze and you've just now been amazed. As I've been learning, I have been having a more compassionate perspective on people who are trying to be professional law enforcement folks Uh, as they deal with the demons in their DNA and more horrified perspective as I see uncovered, really plain to see the demons in the DNA of policing. In the early colonies in the 1600s, policing took three forms. One was the watch, the night watch. And, um, These were people who were volunteers or conscripted or uh, put on the night watch as a little punishment for some little crime that they did. And mostly people just slept through their watch or they were drunk through their watch and therefore ineffectual. Another group was called the stick (laughs) and they were paid for profit people who worked mostly for the rich, keeping them safe and keeping their property safe. The third is the constables. And the constables were paid through the fees for warrants they would serve. Um, They were also supposed to do land surveying and making sure merchants were using fair weights and measures. Sometimes they had the job of supervising those miscreants on the watch. It was not until the 1830s that a centralized police department first emerged in Boston, and then in New York and all the major cities afterwards. By the 1880s, all major US cities had municipal police departments that were, one, taxpayer-supported and bureaucratic, two, they were full-time employees, three, the departments had rules and procedures, and four, they were all accountable to a central authority. So cities were growing, and it's not easy to control drunkenness and prostitution when you're not in a little village. And immigrants were pouring in to our nation from uh, Ireland and from Italy, and they brought their own ideas of how to uh, make it with them, and sometimes that was... A bit criminal. If you want to watch the movie Gangs of New York, you'll see a very interesting and uh, wild picture of what New York City was like when there were just gangs of Irish people and gangs of Italian people um, roaming the streets and all tied to a certain political boss. Now, in this time, it became the way things are that the political bosses controlled the police who all together controlled crime and by controlled crime I don't mean make it not happen I mean they were the ones who were organizing the crime in the cities police work was framed as keeping good order you can let the organized crime keep going on But you don't want anybody messing up the system. So police, we're supposed to keep good order. Now, who defines good order? The people with the money and the power define good order. Right? Now let's go south for a moment. In the south, it was a whole different story. The roots of policing in the south are in the slave patrols. Young white men between 21 and 45 were conscripted to the slave patrols. Everyone had to pay, do it for a year unless you paid your way out of it. Uh, so landowners, owners of enslaved humans, uh, regular farmers who did not own anybody, uh, tradespeople, and uh, pretty much the rest of everybody. If you were white and if you were male, you had to work in the slave patrols. What did they do? Well, they patrolled and made sure that all the enslaved people who were walking around had their proper papers and were in their proper place and didn't have any torches because enslaved folks setting things on fire was the big fear. Has that affected our lives today? Oh, yes. If you were caught with a torch, you could have up to 30 lashes given to you, not after court procedure, but right there in the street. The slave patrols were deputized to police and control the enslaved black people. And to police and control the free black people who had to show their papers all the time to prove that they were not enslaved people. And they were empowered to give out punishment to a man, a woman, or a child on the street right there. That's what the slave patrols did. Now, I listened to a very interesting uh, program on NPR called Through Line. And a man named Khalil Gibran Muhammad said this. He put it like this. They were talking about policing. He said, so the tying together early on, the surveillance, the deputization, essentially, of all white men to be police officers, or in this case, slave patrollers, and then to dispense corporal punishment on the scene are all baked in from the very beginning. Baked in is another way of saying in the DNA, which is another way of saying... It's systemic. In the South, these informal vigilante groups evolved into the KKK, who were policing and terrorizing black folks long after slavery ended into the 1920s. One magistrate wrote to Washington in the 20s and said, there is just Klan court here. That's all we have. Our system of justice is pretty fragile, and we have Klan justice and Klan court. And it got so bad and so violent, and the Klan got so out of control that in the 1920s, the federal government had to step in. Let's go back north again. By the beginning of the 20th century, the political bosses ran the organized crime with the help of the police, and the corruption was nearly total. Then the labor movement began, and the police were suddenly used to control the labor riots, which the workers were, they would call them strikes. So what one person calls a protest, another person calls a riot, what one person calls a strike, another person calls a riot riot. Ensuring a docile and continuous supply of cheap labor who behaved in an orderly way and would keep the factories and mills running to keep the country supplied with goods, that was seen as keeping good order. And the power and moneyed interests had a greater investment in social control than in crime control. And these moneyed interests were the ones who paid the taxes that paid the police. They were all together in a Gordian knot. And so, according to uh, Dr. Gary Potter, who teaches justice studies at Eastern Kentucky University, the way that social control and crime control got to be the same thing is... um, He says, defining social control as crime control was accomplished by raising the specter of the dangerous classes. You know who was in the dangerous classes. You could tick the populations off on one hand. The suggestion was that Public drunkenness, crime, hooliganism, political protests, and worker riots were the product of a biologically inferior, morally intemperate, unskilled, and uneducated underclass. At this time, patrol wagons were created so that larger numbers of people could be arrested at the same time. Alarm boxes were set up in the cities. And respectable white business folk, men, were given the keys to these alarm boxes so they could open the box and alert the police if they felt their property or person was not safe. Over the years, commissions were formed, the first one in 1840, but they were formed over and over again, and they would uncover tremendous corruption of politicians and police, and everybody would say, oh, no, and then the report would be shelved and things would go on. Now, until Prohibition, Prohibition happened, and suddenly the police and the politicians lost their grip on organized crime because every young white Uh, Irish immigrant, Italian immigrant, I'm sure some black folks too, although that's not in the history book I read, big surprise, were involved in bootlegging. Now, bootlegging was a crime, and the police chased everybody for it, and the police couldn't be the ones who controlled bootlegging, and other big organized crime bosses emerged. In the 1950s, there was a push to professionalize police departments. A great big push. Big um, textbooks were written on how to do this. And what they recommended was uh, tightening up of the bureaucracy, more rules, more authority, and big, bigger police uh uh, officers in military-like roles who would then uh, control the rank-and-file police officers so as not to have so many complaints of police corruption and brutality to try to make things better. But in order to make things better, they made things tighter and more authoritarian, and the rank-and-file didn't like that. So by the 60s, police unions were formed to resist the enforcement of the rules made by the um upper ups and so the heavy hand of justice fell because you know there is real crime there was real crime and they needed real policing um but somehow the heavy hand of the police department fell uh, most heavily sometimes almost exclusively heavily on the black brown and native folks So when you're talking about the DNA of policing, when you're talking about what's baked in or what's in the system or what's systemic to policing, you're talking about a whole institution of law enforcement that contains many good-hearted people who want to do the right thing, but whose roots are sunk deep into this poisoned ground of... um, trying to protect the economic interests of the wealthy and trying to keep the dangerous classes away from the wealthy and trying to dominate and control any social uh, disorder, unrest, protest. Because when people are out in the streets protesting, There's fear of lack of control, and what many people want to do when they're in that situation is increase the violence of their control. As our president says, dominate. Don't be too gentle with them. And so we're in a period in our society where we're trying to reimagine what policing might look like, what might actual public safety look like defund the police is a slogan you're going to hear and it is brilliant i have to say because it terrifies people and i took a course once on um engaging people in conversations and they said if you want people to be really engaged in a conversation you start the conversation with what they call an interest creating remark well my lovelies Defund the police is about as interest-creating a remark as you could have because people, you know, if you're holding a sign that says reform the police, people are like, yeah, yeah, we've done that before. Defund, though, that makes people just nuts, and they want to engage in the conversation. And since my theme this year is curiosity, how would we engage that very brilliant but inflammatory slogan, how would we engage that with curiosity? What would that look like? If somebody breaks into our house and we call 911, is nobody going to come? No, that's not what they mean. But I'm not going to go into what they mean because this sermon is long enough already. Let's do our own research. So what I found out in my research this week is that this system, for the good of our culture, for the good of good-hearted police and those who want to truly be about public safety... This system has to be uprooted from the corruption, racism, toadying, and violence of the ground it grew in. I don't know what that means. We need law enforcement, of course. We need public safety. We need to redefine dangerous classes. We need not to try to make the police do everything. Social work, mental health resolving arguments, being a mediator in a neighborhood. They don't need to take on all that stuff. They're not trained to take on all that stuff. And you may argue with me, but to me, a dangerous class is a class of people who have done damage, a class of people who have done massive, widespread damage to a whole culture. And it seems to me that the billionaires club that's been running our country for 200 years are the most damn dangerous people that i can think of so what do we do about that we need good people working for the public good of everyone may it be so Let there now be an offering taken to sustain and strengthen this place with its free pulpit. This place that is sacred to so many of us that we will one day meet and gather together in again. If you want to go to the button for donating, please choose plate. Unless you're paying your pledge, in which case, don't choose plate, choose pledge. Um, Also, if you want to pay by check, We have people here at the church that are checking the mail, so just send your checks on in. It's all right. They won't get lost. We extinguish this
1: flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the
0: fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Please join me in the benediction if you care to. The words of Dr. Bernice Reagan. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black men mother sons is as important as the killing of white men white mother sons we who believe in freedom cannot rest we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes go in peace